Well, I invite you to turn to our scripture passage for today. We're looking at Isaiah 36, verses 11 through 22. Isaiah 36, 11 through 22. So Isaiah 36, starting in verse 11. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall, who, like you, have to eat their own excrement and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the words of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then each of you will eat fruit from your own vine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from a hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. And this is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask as we come to this passage, um, a slightly different passage, a unique passage, show us, Lord, yet how your word is eternally true and unchanging and applicable even to us today when we seek peace on earth and yet we don't find it. Lord, you know everybody here and you know their hearts, uh, you know their burdens, you know where there is no peace in their own lives. And we pray that your spirit would speak to every person here and speak them the life and power of Christ to transform them this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, some of you probably are familiar with the story or if, this bit of history where in 1938, the British prime minister at the time, Neville Chamberlain, gathered with Hitler and other key European leaders in Munich to sign what is called or became known as the Munich Agreement. Uh, after World War I, with all of the bloody violence and killing, uh, Britain and France were wary to get entrenched in another war. And they wanted to keep the peace, even at a great cost. And so the Munich Agreement was supposed to do that. 
Uh, it would, in some sense, appease Hitler and give him just a little bit, portions of Czechoslovakia, and hopefully that would be enough so that there would remain peace in Europe. And Neville Chamberlain returned from that trip and proudly announced from the steps of 10 Downing Street, where he said, for the second time in our history, a British prime minister has returned from Germany, bringing peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. Now go home and have a nice quiet sleep. And yet one year later, as many of us know, Germany would occupy the rest of Czechoslovakia and then six months later invade Poland, kicking off the bloodiest war in human history. Some 50 to 80 million people were killed in World War II. To put that into perspective, that would be like if everybody in Utah and every state west of Utah, including California, were killed in a matter of a couple years. The entire west turned into a graveyard. In this Advent, we are looking at, uh, which is the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we are doing a series called Peace on Earth with a question mark, because as many of us know, when Jesus was born, the angels announced to those shepherds, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And yet in all the years since that angelic announcement of peace on earth, we all rightly question, where is this peace on earth? Where is this peace that Jesus came? Because it doesn't look like it. And this year, more than others, we feel that longing for peace on earth. And so today, in our series, we are looking at the temptation for a false peace that we might face. When things are unsteady, when we feel pressure, where we feel the need to maybe just appease someone or to try to find some sort of temporary relief. But in the end, it is a false peace. It's more like a 24-hour ceasefire, a, pre a peace that involves compromise, but in the end will only lead to greater loss and suffering. And I doubt any of us will ever find ourselves around that you know, table with some of the world's leading dictators negotiating for peace. And yet we all face that same struggle in our lives, in a world that is more and more hostile to Christianity, in family relationships as you have to walk on eggshells and be careful not to say certain things or bring up certain topics, where you feel pressure to jump on board certain ideologies if you want to get a job or keep a job, where you in certain situations feel like you have to keep your beliefs hidden from others. As Christians, we can be tempted to find peace. We don't like conflict. We want to fit in. But we also have to ask ourselves, at what cost do we seek this peace? Is it a true peace, or is it just a temporary truce that will only lead to greater loss in the long run? Or to put it in Neville Chamberlain's words, are we prioritizing our ability to sleep tonight by giving away our eternal peace that we find in Christ? So what I want us to know or remember this morning is simply this, Christ is our peace. Christ is our true peace. And we're going to look at this, it's a little more complicated outline than normal. I'm going to first look at three temptations for a false peace. Three temptations for a false peace. The first is a lack of trust. Second is a bit of compromise. And the third is being on the wrong side of history. And then I'm going to wrap it up by looking at how Christ is our peace. So the first temptation for a false peace is a lack of trust in God, that we don't trust God will be our deliverer. 
So we're jumping into really the second section of Isaiah. And right before this, we learn that Sennacherib, who is the king of Assyria, one of the major powers of that time, which is, was located in modern-day Iraq, began an assault on the Jewish cities. And he started taking them one by one, making his way towards Jerusalem. And he arrives at Jerusalem, the capital, and his armies surround this city. And then they block off the main water supply so that no one in Jerusalem has access to water. Water uh, is very, um, becomes very scarce. And the Assyrian king then sends his field commander, who's the one that does the speaking in our passage, to begin negotiations with Hezekiah, the king of Judah, as he finds his city surrounded and under siege. And initially, the commander speaks to Hezekiah directly, trying to persuade him or negotiate for some sort of peace settlement, to surrender and and give up your city to avoid the bloodshed. But then in verse 11, where we pick up, The commander shifts his tactics, and instead of speaking to the leaders, he begins to speak to all the people in the city, the soldiers guarding the walls, the people inside of the city. And he speaks to them not in Aramaic, but in Hebrew. And Aramaic is the common, at that time, diplomatic and business language, that it was the language that if you were to be a citizen of the world, you would learn. And it was common in some ways, like English is the, the, the language of business today, that many people would know it so they could conduct trade and, and talk to various people. And so here, the commander start, stops speaking in Aramaic and starts speaking in Hebrew, So he's bypassing the negotiators and speaking directly to the people in a language that they would understand. And the the Jewish diplomats are like, no, 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 we don't want all the people to hear our negotiations speak to us in Aramaic. But the commander of the Assyrians is savvy. He's bypassing the gatekeepers and speaking directly to the people. This is an early example of psychological operations or psyops. Uh, Back when I was deployed in Iraq, we had an army PSYOPs team attached to us. And now PSYOPs is not as actually cool as it sounds, but it was primarily a a couple of army guys with a Humvee and massive speakers on top of it that would drive around these Iraqi cities blasting messages in, uh, in Arabic. And the hope was that we would appeal to the people to drive a wedge between the local populace and the Al-Qaeda operatives that were fighting in the cities to tell them, look, you have a better future if you're helping us instead of continuing to side or even give shelter to the Al-Qaeda operatives. And it's the same thing here. The Assyrian commanders to try to drive a wedge between the leadership and the common person saying, look, they don't care about you. They'll let you suffer. They'll let you die. Make peace with us and your life will improve. And so he delivers this message. And the first thing he says in verses 14 to 15 is that you shouldn't trust in Hezekiah or in the Lord. And notice that this commander uses the covenant personal name of God. He says Yahweh. It's the name that's written in all caps in our English Bibles. He's not just saying, oh, don't trust in God in general. He's saying, which to which the Jews could say, well, you don't know our God. Our God is different. He's more powerful than other gods. No, he's using God's personal name as if to say, look, I've done my research on your God. I know his name, and I know he is no match for our king. It's a lack of trust in God that he's trying to plant that seed in their hearts to bring up doubt. Doubt. 
Will God actually deliver us from this threat? And it's also today for us, it's a lack of trust in God that causes us to compromise and perhaps find a false peace, to find our own solutions. Believe in the end, when things get tough for Christians, for you, that God will take care of you. And so you put things in your own hands. And this becomes all the more difficult when it's, we live in tough times. We've been so blessed in this country to freely express our religion. And yet every day we feel more and more pressure of a culture that is quickly changing and doesn't just see Christianity as neutral, but Christianity is actually harmful to people. Where it can become more costly to be a Christian. And it's in those moments where it can be really hard to trust God. God, will you take care of us? Because it seems like no one else will. And we can think of the people here. Verse 12, right? It's this vivid image. Right? And you can imagine a city under siege. The supply lines are cut off. They don't have water. So they are forced to eating their own excrement. And the Syrian commander is saying, are you sure you want to keep trusting in that God? Like, how's that look working out for you right now? How's he doing in feeding you and, and providing for you those basic needs? And so we're tempted to compromise because following God is getting harder and God doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. It seems like God is on his lunch break and we're the ones who are suffering. Well, this brings us then to that second temptation for a false peace, which is just a little compromise to make things easier. We see this in the second part of the commander's speech, verses 16 and 17. He says, make peace with me. And guess what will happen? You'll eat fruit from your own vine and trees uh, and fig trees again. And food is such a powerful motivator. I remember one of the most common conversations we had in boot camp was, what's the first thing we're going to eat when we graduate? What is that meal we most long for? We spent hours talking about that. Food is so powerful. And so imagine how tempting this was for those soldiers who are guarding the walls, forced to be drinking their own urine. And they hadn't had a fresh meal in weeks. And this commander is dangling out this image, oh, wouldn't you love to eat that ripe fruit from your trees again? It'd be enough for them to go mad to say, you know what? Yeah, I want to eat the real food again. And to drink water from your own cisterns. Fresh water would be amazing. No more of this mellow yellow, right? Some clean, pure water. One of the tactics of the Assyrians to keep the peace as they conquered cities was when they overtook the city, they would deport a number of the inhabitants to somewhere else and then backfill the city with prisoners of war they'd captured from another region. And this was a clever way to prevent later uprisings by diluting and removing the local populace in a city. And this is what is being referred to in verses 17, where he says, until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. And he's describing a deportation, but he's describing it like an all-inclusive trip to a resort in Cancun. Hey, there's lots of good wine and fresh bread, and it is all included. I'll take you there. Just make peace with me, and I can bring you into a better world. Hey, don't stand in the way of progress. I'll lead you 
into a better future. And we should recognize so much of our own world today is engaged in a psychological campaign to catechize us and push us and persuade us to embrace the values of the culture, whatever culture that might be. Consumerism, the sexual ethics, who the real bad guys are, who the problem is, what love is, what justice is. We are inundated with psyops every day, and it has a subtle influence on us, pressuring us to make peace with the culture, with the world, and then you can have a better life. You won't have to suffer as much. You'll get better food and just a little compromise. You just have to give up Jerusalem. But I'll take you to a new place. It might even be better than Jerusalem. But in that compromise, as little as that compromise may feel, especially when you're under siege, represents a rejection of a trusting God and a rejection of the inheritance that God gave his people. Jerusalem is the city of God. And you're rejecting that to go have an easier life. And where is it that you're tempted to compromise in your own beliefs, your own values, in order to keep the peace, in order to make your life a little bit easier, in order to fit in a little better? The third temptation we see for a false peace is the wrong side of history. In verses 18 to 20, we're told, don't trust Yahweh to deliver you. And here's why. No God has ever been able to stand up to the king of Assyria. And they go on and list them all. Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? He's saying, look, I've run into all kinds of people who have said the same thing. Our God's going to save us. And look how well it worked out for them. What good did it do for them? They're all destroyed. They've been killed. They've been scattered. Their cities are now under my control. In other words, the Assyrian commanders saying, you don't want to be caught on the wrong side of history here. Right? Just look at these people who thought the same thing as you, and now look how foolish they are. Do you want to look foolish too? Do you want to be humiliated? Come on, make peace with me. Your life will be better. Step onto the right side of history and, you know, join the club, join this movement. Again, we know that very same temptation today. We see this maybe most pronounced with the pressure that is put on Christians around sexuality and gender and, and so much of that. And there's a very powerful argument that I think, you know, on one hand is compelling. Just like slavery is universally condemned today, you don't want to be on the wrong side of history with this and be in that group that will be universally condemned. So come, make peace. Give in or end up being crushed or canceled or whatever it might be. And we can feel that pressure. Right? Maybe we are on the wrong side of history. Maybe we should go along or at least not stand in the way. And then this brings us to the last point. Christ is our true peace. Probably this sermon in the series, more than others, kind of has has pushed us to make us wrestle with these things. And it's because we're all wrestling with these same questions. Will God deliver us when it gets hard? Are we wrong? Do we need to change? But we need to remember that on one hand, this has always been a pressure for God's people. 
We aren't facing anything new. It doesn't matter what culture you're in. There are always parts of that culture, whether it was for the Israelites back then or for us today, or believers living in China or in Africa, that the God of the Bible will rub that culture the wrong way. We need to realize that's always going to happen. And we must remember that instead of trying to find a false or temporary peace, the only solution to the struggles of our world is that Christ is our peace. And he is the only solution to true peace in this world. Ephesians 2, 14 through 17. For Christ himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to you who are near. There's a lot going on here, but one of the key things is simply the only way that there can be peace in our world is through the unifying work of Christ on the cross where he put hostility to death. And this is a radical way to to find peace. This is different from how anybody else is pursuing it, that, that Christ showed the way to peace is through love of your enemies. And this brings about a movement in peace. This is different from any other person. For Christ died not for good people, but for his enemies. Now, people today blame Christians for all kinds of problems. And certainly Christians have messed up a lot, and we can be hypocrites, and we've screwed up a lot of things. But, but when you kind of get to the essence of what has Christianity contributed to the world... There's a good argument that many people make that the key contribution of Christianity is that Jesus put love for your enemies at the center of our ethics. There's no other religion that has done this. There's no other movement that has done this that said the way to heal the world, the way to bring peace is through loving your enemies. And see, just as there's a danger in compromising with those who, you know, for lack of better categories, are radically progressive, there's an equal temptation and danger for us to compromise with those who are radically conservative, who maybe share in some of the same ethics, but in what they're pursuing and how they do it, they've lost love, and love even for their enemies. And this is just as dangerous of a compromise. The early Christian Irenaeus, who lived in that generation after the apostles, he describes God's attitude towards a broken and sinful world as one of embrace, where the two arms of God, the Son and the Spirit, wrap the world in an embrace of love. That's what we have in the first Christmas, right? It is the God himself coming in to a sinful world that hates him but he still does it because he loves it so much. And that sends, that creates the culture for how Christians are to embrace our own world, 
even when it hates us so much. And it's not a love for good people, but a love for sinners, a costly love that sent Jesus to the cross. As one theologian wrote, hanging on a cross where he was sent by an unjust judge, Jesus became the ultimate example of his own teaching. And what did Jesus pray? What did he cry out at the end of his life? Is he embittered? Is he saying, God, judge them, smite them? No, what's he say? Father, forgive them. And Jesus calls us to show that same type of love. We can't compromise. Sometimes we can be so worried, and we're rightly worried. We can't compromise in this area, this area of ethics, or this thing, or that thing, right? We need to stay strong in that, but here's where we can subtly compromise, and it's just as dangerous. We compromise in our forgiveness, and we compromise in our love, even for those who hate us. And that's a dangerous compromise. And how can we love those who don't love us, who hate us? It is incredibly hard. It's unnatural. And so many Christians were being tempted to pull in, be pulled into compromise on our ethics or compromise in hating our enemies, which is another type of compromise. But we must love. We must follow Jesus even when it costs us. And we entrust judgment to God. That he will make all things right. That's what judgment is, is all these things that are imbalanced and broken and off kilter in the world, God will come and judge the world and make it all in harmony again. Romans 12, 19 and 20. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. Now, maybe we don't feel like we're taking revenge, but a way that we show we don't really trust and rest in God's judgment is in we live with just a simmering anger towards people. You're always so quick to blow up or to judge or to criticize someone. You aren't trusting in God to make things right. You're trying to take judgment into your own hands and usurp God's role. So what should we do? Let me make this practical. When we feel more and more under siege as Christians, I think the first thing is we really need to sharpen our convictions. And this is going to be all the more important for us to know what we believe, even when it seems out of kilter with the rest of the world. We need to learn how to speak with love and care and firmness for God's truth, even when it's hard, even when it's out of sync with everybody else. And for some of this, this will be particularly challenging. Maybe those who we tend to be more agreeable or empathetic, we're going to be particularly tempted to compromise or to slowly chip away at biblical truth. But we must know where Scripture draws the lines on things and be convinced of that and, and say, you yeah, know, I'm not going to go any shorter than that, but we also need to be careful not to go any more than that. We need to be okay more and more with being seen as strange, with being seen as outsiders, with not being accepted in certain parts of the world or society. And we need to make sure that if that happens, it's because 
of our Christian convictions, not because we're being jerks or we're morally corrupt or we're hypocrites. And tied to this, we're going to need a lot of wisdom going forward because there's going to be a lot of gray areas of how do you live as a Christian under siege? And the answers won't seem clear. We're going to need to spend a lot of time in Proverbs and understand how does wisdom apply to these really difficult situations. We need to spend a lot of time in prayer. God, how will I, can I honor you in this hard situation? The other thing we need to do and be careful to do is not fight with the weapons of this world. For those of us who tend to be more disagreeable, this is where you're going to struggle. Because there's going to be a temptation just to fight fire with fire. To use the weapons of this world to trash others and fight against the culture warriors on the other side and think you're doing it in God's name. But we must resist that allure and ultimately idolatry of using the weapons of the world to fight against those we disagree with. In the end, that's just going to lose. When Peter drew his sword, when Jesus was being arrested, Peter drew his sword and to fight back against the Roman soldiers. And what did Jesus say? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father's given me? Or when being questioned by Pilate, Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. And Jesus isn't bringing peace by fighting back for himself. He brings peace by the cross. He doesn't rouse his followers to fight or to protest against the Romans and the Jewish leaders, but he embraces that cup of suffering all the way to the cross. He embraces what looks like weakness. And he set the model for us to not be afraid of what might look like weakness, the way of the cross. It's going to be seen weak by the warriors. It's going to be seen as foolish by the lawyers. But the way of the cross is more powerful to topple all authorities. And in the end, it is not weak. It is not weak to be suffering under the cross, on the cross, and saying, Father, forgive them. That requires an incredible amount of strength and trust in God. Now, we might not be tempted to pick up, you know, literal swords like Peter did, but we use our speech as a weapon. How do you talk about those who you disagree with? How do we describe and talk about those who we believe are in the wrong? Do you find yourself sitting in your circle and just bashing all those folks that you think are destroying the world? Or see who can tell the most outrageous story of what somebody did that was so awful or bad? It doesn't mean that as Christians we don't share our disagreements. We don't speak when we need to speak. But do you see those people on the other side? even if you think they're doing great damage, as less than human, as irredeemable. Where is the way of the cross in treating people like that? And we just look like the rest of the world and how we dislike others and how we trash others and how our hearts are hardened to others. There's no costly love in that. And the third thing we need to do is we need to trust more and more in God's judgment you know, some of us were tempted to minimize God's judgment. But in the end, that just minimizes the real injustices and suffering that goes on in our world. It says, oh no, it's not that bad. It doesn't need to be made right. Just get over it. 
judgment shows honor to those who've been wounded. On the flip side, some of us are tempted to weaponize God's judgment and want to become, you know, his arms of judgment. But there we forgot that it's because God is judge that we can love and forgive our enemies, trusting that God will make it all right, that when we forgive this person, we trust that God's going to sort it all out in the end one way or the other. Forgiveness honors justice because, as one person wrote, every act of forgiveness enthrones justice. It draws attention to its violation precisely by offering to forgo its claims. You know, a, a good example, just a short story here, I think, of what this looks like for us is a story from Tim Keller. Probably many of you know him. He was a pastor in our denomination who died um, this past summer. And this happened a few years back where, in 2017, he was invited to Princeton Seminary to receive the Abraham Kuyper Prize in Public Theology and then give the annual Kuyper Lecture. But soon after the announcement that he'd won this prize, there was a big backlash amongst many of the students there at Princeton Seminary because of Keller's views on the ordination of women or not ordaining women and not being affirming of LGBTQ issues. One critic at the seminary wrote, we are honoring and celebrating a man who has championed toxic theology for decades. And under growing pressure, the seminary then, after awarding him the prize, took it back and you know, said, well, okay, we, can't, we aren't going to give you this prize anymore. And what could Keller could have done? What could he have done? Well, he could have compromised his views, made them more acceptable, but he didn't. He could have fought back and lashed out against the downfall of that institution and the culture and how everything is wrong with the world, but he didn't. Instead, what he did is he showed up and he gave the lecture at this place that had just rescinded his prize. Talk about humility. And there, he ultimately spoke of the beauty of Christ, and he modeled that way of the cross. And I think that's a good picture for us today, that we're willing to show up, even in humiliating situations, with the confidence of Jesus to show those who might even hate us what true love looks like. Isn't that exactly what Christ did on the cross? And that is the only way that peace will come to earth. And one day that peace will come. Right? Revelation 21, I heard a shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All those things are gone forever. That day's coming, and that day's assured, and all of your shame, all your suffering will be wiped away, and there will be true peace on earth. And so now we watch and we wait and we long for that day and are God's ambassadors of peace until he comes and does his work of judging the earth and making all things right. Let's pray. Our Father, we ask that you would help us to be strong 
when we feel like we're under siege. And to realize that that strength will be interpreted by so much of the world as weakness. Lord, it is this delicate harmony that we all so much get wrong of holding fast to what we believe in, even standing up for it when appropriate. And yet, at the same time, loving those who hate us. This is a work that only you can do, Lord. Help us not to compromise. Help us not to compromise in watering down what you say is right. Help us not to compromise in taking the weapons into our own hands to fight back to justify ourselves. Lord, would your Spirit work mightily in each of our hearts so that we would look more and more like Christ. And to realize that that will become more and more difficult. And yet to see there is such joy and peace on the other side of the cross. So help us not to fear walking that path. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.